Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. I am your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. And today I am happy and pleased to be joined uh, by my business partner and my friend, Jack Goslin. Jack is uh, Jack has a long and storied history in healthcare facilities management. This is our 18th and final episode of the High Reliability Podcast for 2020. And I'm happy to have Jack join us. People have been asking, when are you going to have Jack? When are you going to have Jack? And we held the best until the end of the year. Jack, welcome to the High Reliability well, Podcast. Well, thank you, Pete. It's uh, great to finally get on board here for a podcast. I guess we had, what, 18 in front of us, but we finally got it done at the end of the year. So that's uh, that's great. And uh, I have spent some time reviewing the other podcasts that you put together, and they're all really great. And I hope people are, are listening to them. Well, I enjoy, uh, you know, I enjoy doing them. They're a, they're a lot of fun to do. And as Jack and I were, were talking about doing this podcast, he said, you know, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, we can talk about, we can talk about anything. We can talk about, you know, our, our normal stuff that we talk about on a, a daily basis. It's just, you know, two friends discussing. But since this is a healthcare facilities management podcast, we also want to focus a little bit on that. We know that 2020 has been quite a tumultuous year. We hope that 2021 is a better year, but I thought, you know, there's probably no better place to start um, than asking Jack a little bit about, um, you know, his history in healthcare facilities management. Many of you know him by name. He started Goslin Associates at the time, way back when, when I was only a toddler. So I thought, you know, a good way to start. Jack, tell us a little bit about your interesting career evolution, because most of the folks we've had on, um, you know, for the 17, they have a unique career path. And I know that you have a unique career path as well. And if somebody had told you, you'd be doing what you're doing way back when, you'd probably say no way. So I'll stop talking, Jack. Tell us a little bit about your career path and your career in healthcare facilities management and then finding, founding the company so many years ago. Great. Okay, well, um, you know, you use the word unique, and you've used that a couple times already. That that the uh, I think a career path in health facilities management is unique. I mean, they they don't give degrees in healthcare facilities management per se. There are educational opportunities, but I think people evolve into into this field. And uh, I mean, in, in my particular situation, I, I was a mechanical engineer uh, out of college. I uh, went to work in the Boston area for a uh, commercial real estate developer, which was um, at 27, 26 years old, was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a, involved running a maintenance crew and doing fit up of, of office buildings and that kind of thing, um, you know, learning a little bit about HVAC and infrastructure, that kind of thing. But it was mainly about snow removal and grass cutting and, uh, you know, building, um, uh, you know, building, fitting out uh, in internal offices and that kind of thing. But anyway, within Within that field, I got a lot of exposure to a lot of different types of businesses and got to meet a lot of people. And one day, I actually, one day I got married. I got married one day and uh, my, I went to University of Vermont and my wife had gone to uh, Norwich University up in Vermont. And we saw an ad in the Boston Globe, which was uh, where you found jobs back in the day uh, for a hospital engineer. And it was a blind ad um, with a box number and uh, it was in Vermont. So we thought whatever hospital engineer does, it's something we probably should think about trying to do and get us back to the state that we, uh, we went to school at. So anyway, I applied for the job and I got an interview, um, 
way up on the Canadian border, a little, uh, now I guess it would be a, a, a um, very small hospital. It was 80 bed at the time, about 100,000 square feet, North Country Hospital, appropriately named, right on the Canadian border. And uh, I started there in 1980 uh, as a hospital engineer, replacing uh, a long-standing kind of senior tradesman who uh, had that role for a number of years before me. It was a 10-year-old hospital at the time, relatively new as far as its chronology is concerned. Um, but I mean, I got to be honest with you, I went up and took the role and I really didn't have a, too much of an idea what it was all about, um, you know, how it put together, what their expectations were of me. I know that the CEO who hired me said that uh, I want you to wear a tie and I want you to be professional. Um, we certainly want to move beyond the, uh, the tradesmen, um, you know, mentality that our facilities department here has had in the past and move on to something that uh, is, is a higher level of service and professionalism. So it was a great way to start. Um, I was there for 12 years. What year was um, that, Jack? That was 1980 I Jack. started. What, what, what year? Uh, 1980, okay. okay. Yeah, 1980. And um, spent 12 years up there. And during the 12 years, I mean, it, it was just a wonderful experience. I learned, I mean, there were a couple of situations. I, I remember um, we had a lot of snow up there. We were in and had our own little uh, environmental system up there. We'd get these snow squalls that would come through and dump two or three feet of snow on the mountains up there in, in Newport. Uh, and I lived in, my wife and I lived in Jay Peak, which is a big ski area, but um, snow was all in cold, which we saw 40 below when we were up there, which which really made some of the challenges of running a hospital very unique. One particular um, recollection I have was was going in and at three o'clock in the morning one time when they were having some problems with something. I can't remember what the issue was, but I remember driving in a, in a blizzard and a whiteout conditions and I got to the hospital and the power was out in the town and I rounded the corner up to the hospital and the place was all lit up. All the parking lot lights are on, all the buildings lit up and the generators are chugging away. I remember saying to myself, you know, uh, these people, these people's lives that are in that building do depend a lot on me and the people that work for me and supporting the, uh, you know, the, the uh, generator and the, I make sure we have fuel and making sure that everything's in good shape to support the life safety aspects of, 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 of this operation. And, you know, I remember from that moment forward, I really did realize how important the work that uh, that we do in this profession, uh, you know, truly is. Um, from there, I moved down to Connecticut, became a vice president at a hospital system down here in Connecticut. And for another uh, nine years beyond that, taking me to the early 2000s, um, at that point, uh, started to look what my next step might be. Um, I, I love the I guess the evolution of the of my particular role and the way I advanced, the way I learned to kind of go from a you know into leadership and how much technical information I really needed or who I could go to for the information that I that I needed to do my job. But the leadership aspects became very critical to me um, in my advancement and my my job satisfaction. To be honest with you, so um, again in, in early two thousand, I started a company um, to do recruiting that would help. Uh, folks that wanted to get into our field and advance in our field, um, dealing with hospitals to find those folks. And it really did quite well for itself. And I think a lot of it had to do with the network I had established. I served on the board of ASHI. I was very active in the New England group. But, you know, became very excited about, um, you know, the field as I progressed through it and, and the uh, the recruitment aspect of it, uh, of the company that I formed really um, you know, help solidify, I think, me in the field and the way my uh, my thought process went, went moving forward. So, um, you know, moving through that over the years, uh, 
five, six, seven years ago, uh, this guy named uh, Pete Martin appeared uh, and and sat with me, and we talked in my office down in Mystic about you know his interest in, in health facilities management. He had a, a good career on the PDC side of things, and we talked about linking up and uh, and, and entering uh, down the road together on this thing, and that's exactly what we did. And uh, you know, Pete again has brought a, a whole dimension of um, of expertise to the business in terms of education and and uh, grooming people and professionalism and uh, and communication and all the soft skills that we talk so much about today. So, so that's a, a brief rundown, I think, of where I've been, and uh, uh, hopefully that uh, that fills out that story. Yeah, no, it it does. And Jack is uh, Jack is right. It was actually probably the summer of 2013, more than seven years ago now. Um, and it just shows you how quickly time, time flies. I know that, you know, for me, if you had told me that I would be doing consulting and we'd be doing recruiting and education, I would have told you that there's no way I could never have envisioned myself doing what we're doing now. And I love doing what we're doing now. So I, I, I say that in a, in a good way for you, Jack. Um, you know, when you were in the midst of your engineering career, could you have envisioned jumping to the consultant side and, and working with hospitals and, and doing what you're doing now? That's an interesting uh, point, Pete, you bring up. I, I, my, my father, uh, who was a pharmacist and, and uh, was very worked in, the, in the, uh, the pharmacy field in terms of statistical and, and, and uh, trending and that kind of thing, he was hired by the drug companies to Look, be a futurist and determine, you know, what prescriptions were going to be best filled and what the manufacturers should do the, to meet the role. All that said, I remember him saying to me one time, if you, what you want to do is get something really, get really good at something, get, get, get a specialty, get a field, get an area of expertise, but really learn it well. And, and if you do that, and, and when you do that, I should say, then, you know, you're going to be successful and people are going to want to talk to you and people are going to want to um, you know, listen to you and are going to be willing to pay you for your expertise. So, you know, having this field that I've enjoyed in the healthcare facilities field, um, that's what I tried to do. I mean, not not learn everything about engineering, but learning about the expectations that that field, um, you know, was, was, you know, needed at that point. And we've seen such an evolution over the last 20, 30, even 40 years of where this specialty and where this field has, this discipline has come. Uh, you know, it's just a nice, nice being part of it. But I mean, to answer your question, I mean, I think it's kind of, I kind of grew into it. And it, what's been interesting, um, just to move ahead a little bit, since you've joined the group, Pete, um, I think it's been interesting. We're two very different individuals. I mean, everybody is different in their own way. And when Pete came along and, and uh, you know, offered to step and join me in the business, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to train him to be, you know, a Jack Oslin because he's a Peter Martin. And, and Peter Martin is going to bring some unique set of expertise to the, the table Things that I don't, you know, necessarily do well, and other things that I may do well that he does well. But it's a lesson that I think we could all learn. If, if somebody has a business and wants to grow the business and, and wants to bring people in, you, I mean, there's a side of me that always felt when Pete joined me that, you know, um, is he going to represent all the work I've done to build this company and build a reputation? You know, is he going to continue down that road, or is he going to take another road? And it's really interesting because he has taken he he developed the education programs. And some of the assessment programs that we do now, they're so much more robust than they were when I had the company by myself because I never saw that vision, nor did I necessarily possess the, the, the skills that were necessary to take us down that 
that tangent, but it's it very worthwhile and it's been fun. I mean, that's a great word to use. It's been fun watching Pete, you know, take this bus and start driving it down down the road in his own direction because it's been, you know, very successful and, and we've changed with the times and grown with it. So that's been, uh, you know, that's been very interesting as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I agree with you, Jack. I think, um, you know, as, as, as we've worked together, you know, so closely as business partners, I, I think part of the reason it's worked is because we like each other, number one. And I would think that's probably <laughs> has to be the most important is, is liking the person you, you're working with. And also, you know, we don't always, um, well, we, we don't always see the same vision, but I think at the end of the day, we both respect each other and we're able to work together, you know, and, and come to a consensus. So I agree with you. It's been, it's been, you know, fantastic, um, to do, but I think at the core, you really better make sure that you like the person that you're working with. Um, cause I don't think it's successful. If not, Jack, you had mentioned, um, the business changing, you know, what do you see? And let's, let's jump back. Cause you really wear two hats. You've got your consulting hat and you've got your engineering hat. Let's go back to 1980. Um, what do you see as the biggest change in healthcare facilities management from 1980 to 2020, 2021? Well, I would say, I mean, there's been been so many moving parts and pieces of the career. I think the biggest change that I've seen is is an evolution that has put this role within a organization um, as as a integral part of the care team, um, an integral part of the executive management, uh, an integral part of the entire success of the organization. I mean, back when, when I started back in 1980s, I mean, literally, it was the maintenance function. I mean, let's keep this place lit. Let's, I mean, light bulbs and toilet seats were the biggest issues that we, we had. And again, I talk about lawn mowing, lawn mowing and grounds care and snow removal were, were always the biggest challenges. And, and you know, in, in the reality, you had real estate and you had PV, you had plain design and construction and you had infrastructure. I mean, this is high level stuff that generally was some of those decisions were based on the finances. The CFO was very involved. You had clinical people making a lot of structural decisions, quote unquote. And now, I mean, over the years, we've seen the, the, the appreciation for the, what the facilities person brings to this role and the vision that is very widespread and, and runs very deep, um, puts it on the table and has become an integral part of the of leadership team of a hospital. And again, we, we've seen from our recruiting work, uh, you know, we've seen the new title of chief facilities officer, um, you know, many vice presidents now, many senior directors. Um, you know, these are people that, you know, if you had to look at maybe the top five level, high level administrative folks that, that make a hospital run, I think you're going to see some kind of asset management or facilities management person in that role you know, up high in the C-suite. And, and, and that's, that's something that we as a, as a discipline and we as people that fill those roles um, need to be cognizant of because, you know, our ability to communicate, our ability to write, our ability to, um, you know, to, to, to be professionals in that role, not talk just about the chillers and the boilers, but be able to talk about the vision and strategic ideas and strategic planning that, you know, up until you know, maybe 10 or 12 or, or 10 or 20 years ago, you know, wasn't a, a primary role. I, I know when I started um, doing recruitment, say in 2004, 2005, right around then, hospitals would say, 
you know, we have a we have an incumbent who's been here for 30 years. His name is Charlie, and Charlie's retiring at 70 years old, and we need to replace him, so we want a new Charlie. And I'll say, so what are you looking for? And they'll say, well, exactly, somebody just like him, because the place is warm and it's lit and the grass is mowed and the snow is gone in the winter. Uh, we want somebody just like Charlie. And when you meet Charlie, nice guy, but, you know, he didn't have that strategic vision. He didn't have that 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 big picture uh, ideal about him. And, and that's something that I think we've seen develop substantially, you know, over the past, uh, you know, whatever timelines are hard to come by, but 10, 15, 20 years, um, you're really looking for somebody that can fit into that executive mold and, and have that vision that um, that we that all organizations require these days. Absolutely, we, we've certainly seen it. And do you think that within like the past five to to ten years has has there been a um, has there been an increased focus on kind of that softer side as opposed to the technical side? How have you seen that evolve since you know jumping in 1980 when you knew nothing, but you were a mechanical engineer? And that evolution, how have you seen it move from technical to soft skill? What's that evolution been like? Well, you know, that's interesting because I, I'm a big believer that that everything goes in cycles. And, and I don't know what the cycles would be in terms of longevity and years and things like that. But I mean, you know, when, when, again, when I started 40 years ago in this business, it was transitioning out of the trades. I mean, we can't we have to have somebody that 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 supports the support of the operation of this of this sophisticated, complex hospital, but not necessarily wearing a tool belt or grabbing a wrench and saying, I'll fix it. I mean, you need leadership, you need, um, you know, you need innovation, you need strategic thinking. And that's what we saw that kind of pendulum switch over to that side, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. And now, I mean, I'm seeing from time to time they, that pendulum swinging back, uh, you know, we, we have automated we have computerized maintenance systems now. We have a lot of tools out there that make the the trades job a little bit easier. And at the same time, a lot of folks got into management and leadership positions, and we're now we're at a shortage of, of trades. So now we're, the pendulum is moving back the other way where we need to maintain our leadership and our strategic thinking in our field. But at the same time, you know, as leaders, we need to address, you know, where we're going to get these folks that are going to do the trades work and going to have the hands-on expertise to carry us through the next few decades. So, you know, it's not unusual to have this thing, this, this kind of pendulum swing in any field, but I think it's pretty obvious in our, in our health facilities management arena that um, we are going to need, um, you know, more of a focus kind of back to basics to, to maintain, um, you know, all the sophisticated systems we have within hospitals these days. Yeah, absolutely. You, you and I have talked a lot about, and, um, over the years, you know, we, so Jack is down our office for many years, Jack established Goslin Associates down along the shoreline of Connecticut in Mystic. And so I moved the office up to here to Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm just outside of Boston about two years ago. Um, but we still communicate quite frequently. We still sit in the same office quite frequently. And in addition to talking about food and trains and boats, we talk a lot about the evolution of um, of communication and how people connect and get together. And one of the things we speak about quite often is ASHI and the New England Healthcare Engineer Society and how in the last couple of years, there appears to be, it's more difficult to get folks together. And Jack is a huge proponent of 
of Ashy, and he's a huge proponent of Nihis, and he's been involved, as am I, um, not to the extent of Jack, obviously. But Jack, do you see, how have you seen societies change over the years, the engineering societies? And what what are some of those challenges, and what are some big differences now in 2021 as compared to, you know, the 80s and 90s when you were jumping in, getting your feet wet, and moving up in leadership positions in these societies? Well, you know, Pete, it's... um I, I'm a big believer that it's all about relationships, and I think you can't develop relationships unless you can spend some time networking with people, um, meeting them face to face. You know, really getting to know people as as individuals, and 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 really know what makes people, and then you know, make make people tick and what they think about. And I spent a lot of my efforts uh, in my career getting to know people. I mean, I'm, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I think that. Um, you know, probably not today so much as 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you mentioned my name um, to a typical, at a typical ASHI conference or Nihis conference, I think most people would know who I was. And, and it took a long time to develop those relationships and be as visible as I possibly could be, because I think, you know, we, we say even in our jobs that um, credibility comes from visibility. And um, I mean, I would spend a lot of my my ashy time uh, at at conferences, um, you know, walking around, getting to know people, um, you know, and really building, I think, a, a certain trust. and And I think that that's something that that's uh, you know probably primary, um, you know, to uh, you know being successful. And, and people would come to me, and they look, and they still do. And I mean, they they come to people, they come to both of us a lot, just looking for career counseling. You know, what what works these days? You know, what's going to help me? Um, you know, separate, uh, you know, myself from all the other folks in this business, what makes me unique. And, and everybody's got a set of traits that, that makes them unique. And I think it's a matter of really promoting what you could bring to the table. And, um, you know, there's no right or wrong way. There's just, you know, your way. And I think that that's uh, important to recognize. So I, back to the, the, the question that I've, I've gotten away from a little bit here, the networking aspects of it. I, I really think that um, we've got to get back to that. Obviously, with COVID and the pandemic, that's not been in the cards for, for the next few months. But I think things will turn, return to normal um, at some point in time. And when they do, um, we're going to have to pick up where we left off. I'm going to have to make relationships, um, uh, you know, a big part of, of who we are again. And face-to-face uh, times without masks are going to be uh, unique. I was just telling my wife the other night that I, I really miss not seeing people's features. It's amazing how when you wear a mask and you run into people these days, it's hard to tell, um, you know, you, you listen to them and not only do they have a muffled sound in their mouth, but you also can't see, read their lips and you can't see their smiles. And, you know, there's only so much you can see through their eyes. And in a sense, you know, that question about networking, the value of face-to-face encounters with people are really what we're going through right now. And I think we can all feel um, the kind of the, the, the lack of socialization and the lack of networking that we all are experiencing for all good reason. I understand all that, but I think we've really taken a hit on that. It's going to take a while to rebuild that as well. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I was, it's funny you say that. I was watching a um, college basketball game last night. Marquette, my alma mater, was playing Creighton. And um, the Creighton coach, so the coaches all wear the masks, but the Creighton coach was wearing a see-through mask. And so you could see his uh you could see his face, you could see his mouth. And the announcers were saying that he went to a see-through or clear mask because he wanted his players to be able to see his facial expressions. Because you're right. I mean, 
it's such a good point. You you lose all that. Like I'll, I'll catch myself now smiling at something when I'm interacting with somebody out and they don't know you're smiling. Right. I mean, they have they have no idea because you, you've lost half of your face. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, that uh, that is interesting. That so imperative. I know that Jack and I have done a number of um, Zoom <clears throat> conferences with with regional engineering societies, you know, as they're looking for content. Um, you know, we've developed a couple of classes and I know that, I know for me, we're both very, you know, we're different people, but we're also very um, gregarious, outward facing people. And I know the Zoom has been difficult for me to get used to because you just lose that, you know, you lose the interaction. As you said, you make the best of a bad situation, but I hope we don't get used to Zoom conferences and, and, and those types of things, because I think you really lose a lot. Would you have, Jack, would you, you know, relative to engineering societies, um, the societies and ASHI, would you have been able to, especially coming in as a new person, would, would you have been able to succeed, do you think, without those, without that support? No, I, I think, Pete, that they were, they were key. They really were. And um, again, the reason they were key is to give you access to, you know, a, um, a, a large amount of people that, uh, you know, congregate in the same place to learn and to share ideas. I mean, I, I'm probably the guy when you, when you go to an ASHI conference back in, back in the day, um, you know, when we had them face to face, that, that was, uh, you know, walking the halls during the courses, everybody would run into the rooms and, and, and you have four or five different simultaneous courses you can take. And I was always the guy that was outside. I mean, I needed to learn that stuff, but I felt in my time, oftentimes it was better having conversations in the hallways with the people that I haven't seen for a year. And, um, you know, I was, people say, don't you ever go in and learn any of this stuff? And I said, well, yeah, I do. But um, I, I really am here just to network and learn what the needs of the people are in this field as we, as we get around. So um, instrumental. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I've never, you know, run a society per se. I mean, in terms of what, what the next step is to, to not force, but, in, in, you know, try to get people, give them some incentive to get together and come to meetings. People don't have Forget about the pandemic. That will put that behind us for now. But at some point in time, they're going to open up the world again, and we're going to be able to have face-to-face meetings. And you know, what's going to entice people um, to come to them and, and, and pay the money and spend the time two, three, four days away from work, you know, to sit and shake hands and um, and get to know people on a, on a personal, interpersonal basis? I mean, that's going to be a struggle. And I think that I hope the I'm sure these societies are up for it, Ashy, and, and all the ro- local chapters as well. But I think it's going to be a big challenge to get people out of their offices now, which they've got so comfortable in doing a job, you know, in, in, in four walls, and get them out of the office and get them back into the mainstream of networking and getting to know people as people. Yeah, absolutely. If you and you know, I gotta gotta give Jack credit. If you are ever when we go back to the Ashy conference. Um, if you get an opportunity to walk the trade show floor with Jack, he is an expert forager. Is that not correct, Jack? Yeah, yeah. Um, explain what forager means. <laughs> Jack is able to, Jack can go in, he can have nothing in his bag, and he can come out an hour later, and the bag is full, and it's overflowing with with goodies from all well, vendors the, who are located on that conference floor. One of the keys to that aspect, I remember one of the stories that falls out of that, I, I do pride myself in 
being able to, you know, get the tape measures, get the hands, well, the hand sanitizer these days, but <laughs> all the squeegee, get the, the back scratcher, balls, back scratcher and notebooks and pens and highlighters. And I, I, I'd finish the trade show, you know, with it, like Pete says, with a bag of, you know, two or three bags sometimes of freebies. And, uh, and I'd say, how am I going to take these things home? You know, <laughs> but I remember many times coming back and we had a, uh, we had a, a wonderful person who worked in our office, our office manager, Michelle Dean, for a number of years in Mystic. And uh, I'd show up after going to a conference and I'd come into the office and I'd walk up to her desk and I'd say, Michelle, look what I got this time. And I'd open the bag up and it'd just be full of all this stuff. And she'd say, what a waste of time. That stuff's going to end up in a landfill. And I mean, you're not doing the environment any favors by collecting all that crap. You know, send it back or something like that. But I remember I just put my tail between my legs and, you know, give the kids a couple of pens and stuff them, stuck them, stick them in their Christmas stuff or whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the quality of the freebies these days is probably a little more minimal was back in back in the day. But I always had fun. It was another story that comes to mind that uh, while well, I well I had the audience here got the mic. They um, when I first got into the field back in the eighties, I, I went to my first Nihis meeting, New England Healthcare Engineers Society meeting. And for most of you are familiar with that long-standing group. They've been around since 1959, I believe it is. But I went to my first reception. I'm there with my wife, and, and we're, we we knew no, virtually no one. And I, I did run into um, an individual named John Crowley, who I think a lot of us probably know from over the years. And John's kind of semi-retired these days. But I ran into him and his lovely life, wife, Mary Lou, and, and the four of us were chatting. And I, I turned to John, who I just idolized. We came from some big hospital in the Boston area. And I was just this little clown from northern Vermont, a small little, you know, critical access place. But I asked John how his week went, and he went, oh, what a week I've had. And he goes back. He said, you know, Monday I had a um, – uh, actually, had a boiler uh, explosion, and it, it blew the back end off a boiler, and it threw all the asbestos fibers into the out, – outside the boiler. And then Tuesday, he said we had a major plumbing leak up on the 14th floor, and he said a flushometer cracked and started filling the – and we had water running down the hall. And then – Wednesday, he said we had an oil spill uh, as the tanker truck came in and hit a, a dumpster and, and started spilling oil. He goes, I've had a hell of a week. And then he said, I'm going to grab a beer. And he walked away from the little meeting the four of us were having. And my wife turned to me and her mouth is hanging open. And she says, now there's a real engineer. She said, you go to work and you <laughs> come back how your day was. And you said you've ordered a case of fluorescent light tubes and, and you've signed a new contract to have the landscaping done for the year there's a real engineer. And I remember saying, honey, the whole idea of this profession is to keep those things from happening, not, not, you know, not get excited <laughs> when they do happen. I'll never forget that. That's a real engineer. And every single time John and I see each other these days, and it's not that often, unfortunately, but we always remember the, the case of the real engineer. That's awesome. That's a great story. And, and just the, the postscript to that, two postscripts. Number one, you write about John Crowley, I mean, as you know, I worked with John for a bit, and John is probably one of the most helpful um, people I've ever encountered. Whenever you need anything or if there's an issue, John is always willing and able to help and always went out of his way uh, to help. So John is John stands out for that and, of course, his knowledge. And then I guess secondarily, Jack, you know, despite that real engineer comment, you and your wife are still together. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and a now, lot, probably, a lot of, you know, uh, 
I was going to say a lot of a lot of stories, um, as Pete will attest to. I mean, I love I love telling stories, and, uh, and hopefully they're they're uh, I don't I don't go on and on about about uh, all the different events. But uh, when I, when I one th- one story that I think might also uh, be be kind of of interest in interviewing. You know, Pete and I are always giving people interview tips. And when you go in an interview, um, you know how to behave and know what to talk about and how oftentimes interviewers can draw you out of your comfort zone and then you're heading down some some road that you really don't want to head down and we try to caution people to you know stay on on focus when they're being interviewed for a particular position but I was being interviewed you know here we are 28 years old 27 years old uh and up in up in Vermont at North Country Hospital the CEO was interviewing me was thinking of hiring me as like 38 years old himself and and this is all so new to him but he, he came up with this hypothetical situation. Um, he said, let me just give you this, this, this example, and you can tell me what you think. He said, down in, in this department, it's called Central Sterile Supply. We had these pieces of equipment called sterilizers. And he said, what we do is after the operating room is done with the instruments and they're contaminated, we put them in this sterilizer. And he, he's obviously talking down to me because I never worked in the hospital before. And he said, you know, we put our instruments in there and then we get them ready for the next day. You know, and I, I'm I'm not. And he says, "Well, let's let's say it snows up here a lot. And you know that, and we get these blizzards. And let's say the sterilizer goes down." And he said, "We have big surgery plans for the next day, and we can't sterilize our instruments. We have some important life life sustaining surgeries in the morning. What what are you going to do? Because you're in charge of that that the operation of that piece of equipment." So I'm saying to myself, you know, this this is the um, this is the question that's going to get me this job or not get me this job. I want to think it through. So I. I looked at him and I said, Mr. Cassidy, which was his name, I said, uh, I would never let the hospital get in such a compromised position. And I would go out and I would purchase maybe a dozen sterilizers. And I'd keep them all on shelves and I'd say, I'm all ready to go. And when one failed, I'd just unplug it, move it out of the way and put a new one in. And then I kind of slapped my hands together and said, there you go. And uh, he's grinning from ear to ear. And he goes on to tell me that a sterilizer is like this, you know, $150,000, $200,000 at the time. A piece of equipment because a big refrigerator, and uh, we can't afford to have more than one on hand. So I remember putting my head down. I said, "Well, I guess that's the uh, that's the end of this interview." And I remember him looked at me and he said, "No, I, I I like your style. I like your innovative kind of uh, innovative approach to this kind of thing. Maybe not in that application, but another. So I'd like to offer you the job." So I'll always remember that. Uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. But I know what a sterilizer is now. <laughs> and you know how much it costs. I think that's, um, you know, we, we, as Jack said, we do a lot of counseling and, and people call and, and, and we enjoy that part of the role. And I think that's, you know, that's among the most difficult um, things to talk about in an interview. Because, Jack, you know, you gave that gentleman that answer and he accepted that because he looked at it as probably looked at it as, OK, this guy, you know, he's he's thinking and he's on his game. Whereas if you give that answer to somebody else, they may say, this guy's an idiot. This kid's an idiot. I can't hire him. And that shows you how difficult it is and how much of the interview comes down to the personality and how you interact with that person, your ultimate success in, in, in getting the job and keeping the job. Because you could see where that answer, I mean, you thought you lost it, but instead you got hired. Well, no, that's important, Pete, to realize too, and it's very important. I think that that we all, um, and that's, I mean, that's an evolution that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast about how we're we're expecting facilities engineers now to actually have personalities that actually folks that communicate, folks that 
you know, are, are willing to engage in problem solving and strategic thinking. And honestly, in the past, the, the, the whole maintenance and the operation of a, of a sophisticated building like a hospital was was something that, that the, the facilities engineering, plan ops department, whatever you want to call them, maintenance function back in the day, kept very close to them. I mean, this is whether it was for job security or just nobody else understood what it took to run a place like this. People didn't know. I remember one of the things that I used to do, I'd go to a monthly board meeting at both hospitals that I worked at, and I'd, I'd set aside an hour if any, any of the board members at the end of the meeting or sometimes during the break, we'd just tour the building and we'd pop a few ceiling tiles in areas that we were working in or sort of the new construction areas. We'd talk about codes and fire alarm systems, and I'd bring you know dielectric fittings to the meeting to show them how pipes went together and how pipes failed and the kind of things that we were up against. But it never hurt to be engaging. And I mean, I think that's probably one of the things that um, I pride myself on. And I think we try to teach um, younger folks coming in and even more senior folks who may be struggling in their job is, you know, get engaged, you know, develop a, a communication style that people will come to you, you know, and discuss their issues with them. I mean, it's a great way to, um, you know, to, to, to work and invest in your organization and, and, and make the, uh, take the time to, to show people that no matter how small your problem Maybe I always use that example of walking out to your parking out to the parking lot to get in your car at five thirty, six o'clock at night after a twelve hour day and you happen to see a nurse that you nurse manager going to her car and she said, Oh, by the way, Jack, there's a light bulb up over our desk. I keep meaning to write a work order, but it's over our pharmacy unit and I keep forgetting anyway you can have one of the guys take care of it. And you know, how many times would you just say, Of course, and you go to your car, you forget about it? She comes in the next day and the light's still flickering and then you lose, you know, that particular connection where, you know, if you take the time to write a note to yourself or call it back in the building and have it taken care of, her flickering light bulb in the scheme of things may not be that big a deal to you or anything else you're dealing with that particular moment or that particular day. But it's huge to her. And, uh, you know, taking, you know, having that face to face you know, transfer of information and making good on it is is priceless. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you talked about developing your own style and that's really important because you know, you cannot be something that you're not because that's not going to work either. You're going to come across as fake. And I remember uh, I had a boss once and we were talking, um, the two of us in his office, and we were it was actually in regard to um, some OAC, some owner architect contractor meetings um, that we had had. And and he said, you know, you need to, uh, you know, you need to talk more during these meetings. And I said to him, you know, I said, no, I said, I'm, I'm one of the, I only talk when I have something to say and I only talk when I have something to offer. And I was like, I'm not going to talk more just to talk. I'm just not comfortable with that style. And that that's not who I am. And you and I talk about this a lot. You love to talk and you love to tell stories and I do too, but I also love to listen. So I think we counter each other well. And I said that to my boss. I was like, I'm not going to speak just to speak and be heard. I'm only going to talk when I need to. And I think it's very, you know, it's very important to to be self-reflective and know who you are and know how you operate. And that doesn't mean you can't change and be a little more communicative, but you also need to be comfortable with how you go about your business. Because if you try to be something you're not, I think that's going to shine through as well. Do you Do you agree, Jack, that if you try to change your style for somebody else or you try to be something you're not, ultimately it's probably not going to succeed for you. I, I, I agree with that, Pete. And, and, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult. Everybody is an individual. 
<clears throat> we acknowledge that. I mean, you can't be who you're not. I mean, I, I know I, you and I joke about it a lot. I mean, I'm happy to to talk forever. You are a great listener. So, I mean, probably most of the words going around the office come from my mouth. And as my wife eloquently puts it, <laughs> do you ever shut up? All that, all that aside, um, I had a boss, and actually, was in the hospital down here in Connecticut. That was a, a man of very few words, and I'd meet with him every week, as we typically go to our boss, and we we cover all the things. I made a list up of all the projects we were working on, and all the news items that I felt the CEO wanted to know about. And at the end of every meeting, I'd always go, "Okay, Chuck, uh, there you go. Any questions?" And he'd go, "Nope." And I said, "Anything for me?" And he'd go, "Nope." And I'd say, okay, fine. And this went on, I mean, week after week, month after month. I mean, occasionally he'd throw something at me, you know, just about a, a FYI. But finally I said, you know, Chuck, you're, you, you never say anything. I mean, I, I assume that everything I'm doing here is what you're expecting me to do. Uh, our level setting, I mean, everything is, is, is up to par. There's no complaints. Everything's fine. But you never say anything, you know, except aha uh-huh, or that sounds good or whatever. And he said, I, I learn a lot more from listening than I do from talking. And I remember saying to myself, whoa, you know, that's, a, that's something to remember, Jack, because that didn't come naturally to me for sure. But, uh, you know, I mean, you got, you got to be who you are, I guess. And, uh, um, you know, I, I know uh, comedy is another thing that, that Pete, you and I talk about. We, we, we do like to, to tell light stories. We do like to see the humorous side of life. And I think that in my case, I, I've always, uh, always enjoyed that, too, because, I mean, life is way too short to take things too seriously. So to interject stories some humor and things from time to time. I think it's always a, a, a great, uh, a great uh, thing to do. Yeah. Especially these days where everything is so tense and people on edge, you're, you're right. I mean, there's nothing like a, a little bit of humor. Um, one of the things Jack or, or, you know, so in our, in our business, there's really a group of people that we're, you know, continually dealing with. We're, we're dealing with candidates who are looking for jobs or who maybe just, you know, questioning what they're doing. We'll work with, um, you know, third-party service providers, people who are primarily on that end. We'll work with consultants, people like you and I, except maybe they're life safety consultants, they're compliance consultants, they're owner's representative consultants. And there's another group that's increasingly getting larger. And, and I'm wondering, and, and we didn't talk about this beforehand, um, but I'm wondering if you might be able to speak a little bit to them. It, it's those groups of individuals, Jack, and, and again, we've talked about these guys a lot in the office, who are, they're approaching there and they're, they're baby boomers, maybe 65, 70 years old, between in, somewhere in there. And they're trying to think, you know, they're working now in healthcare facilities management, but they're also trying to think of their next step. And they, they want to, you know, they don't want to retire. They want to stay active. They have a lot to offer. What advice do you give those people who are just thinking about that next step? You know, that demographic that's close to retirement, but wants to stay in the game. What do you tell them as they're trying to think maybe about their next career step or what they should be thinking about? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Pete. I mean, that is a a big part of um, a big part of what seniors think about these days and there's a bunch of us out there i mean i i look at the um i look at You're the demographics and i know senior yeah just by days of course but um uh you know seriously though i mean uh you look at a career that if you've been in this business for a long time which there's a lot of folks of, of my generation the baby boomers that that have been in this field for a long time it becomes a part of you and it becomes your 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 um 
your essence, I mean, your reason for getting up in the morning and going to work is so you can share some of your expertise with an organization that needs your expertise. And it's a it's a fine line. Then all of a sudden you get to a point in your career where you realize there's people that, you know, seemingly know as much as you do and are probably a little more eloquent about, you know, staying current. And what is your value? And once you start kind of evolving away from the field, like people say, I can't wait to retire so I can go fishing or I can go sailing or I can do more skiing or I can do more home projects, you know, and it, it, these, these are all interesting things to transition out of. But the core knowledge base that you have that you've been doing for many, many years is, is in your particular field of expertise. And, you know, to, to wean yourself from that, I think is very important in the way you go about doing that. I've been very fortunate to have you, Pete, come along and be able to keep things running the way it goes, but allow me to, you know, kind of uh, pick and choose the things that, that I want to do to keep us, you know, keep our name out there, but at the same time, be able to back off and enjoy some of the things that, you know, I like to do, like sail my boat and, um, you know, I'm not a golfer, but I mean, there's plenty of other things, reading, uh, you know, family time, that kind of thing where, you know, you, you realize your, 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 your time is, is limited and, you know, you want to give yourself, I think, as much support as you can in, in maintaining some presence in your field. Easy for me because I'm in the consulting business and we have a company that's going to run regardless of, you know, what, what I do when I get up in the morning. But a lot of folks that retire literally clean their office out, put stuff in a box and shut the door and turn the lights out and go home. It can be pretty tough. And I know a lot of those folks now that struggle with that kind of thing. And again, I would suggest that if you can just keep write an article, get, you know, get hold of the folks at ASHI and ask what you can do to, um, you know, maybe promote some of your, your expertise and, and, and maybe volunteer to a committee. If you don't want to do it on a national basis, spend some time locally with your, with your chapter and doing some work with them. I mean, people appreciate that kind of stuff that you can do and, 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 and the kind of expertise you bring to the table. It's also a very individual thing. I mean, some people turn the lights out and shut that door. I just referred to and just can't wait to get in their car and drive off campus and never think about the damn place again. And I mean, that's, that's okay. I mean, that, that's fine. If that's what you think, but um, you know, those of us, I, I know myself, you, you want to kind of purge your life of, of your, uh, of your career expertise and, 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 and hold on to it as long as you can, but not hold on to it too long. I know, Pete and, I, Pete and I have had that discussion a number of times in, in my particular case where I'll go, well, yeah, I just, I'm getting too old for this. I mean, it's just people, you can find people that know as easily as much as I do, if not a lot more, that are half my age. So why am I? And, and he'd say, no, you're not. you're not. You're not over the hill yet. You still bring a lot to the table. And that's encouraging. I mean, that's the other part of it. Have, surround yourself with people who are encouraging for you, um, you know, to continue to grow in the field and offers, you know, give, give back as much as you can. I think that's a, a key point as well. Yeah, I agree. I I agree, and I think I've enjoyed that. And if uh, you know, if you ever said I, I want to stop traveling, who would I eat with uh, in the airport and have ice cream with on the way back? But um, you know, even more importantly than that, I think one of the things that I've um, you know I notice about you relative to um, you know relative to how you handle things um, relative to work and that work life balance. And I say this to my wife Julia all the time. Jack, I think, is very fortunate in that he's got the healthcare facilities engineering background, but, and I say this not to uh, suck up to you at all, you have so many outside interests. And I think, and, and I'm obviously a little bit younger than you, I think for you, you know, whether it be sailing, whether it be reading, you love the railroad, you're handy, you can build things, you got your United States maps that you build. I think 
and you can speak to this and I'll stop because you could speak to it better than I, but I think one of the things that has allowed you to, to transition, but still be pleased is that you have so many interests that you're able to go to just if, you know, if you take sailing, um, you're able to occupy yourself, but more importantly, you're able to occupy your mind as you're doing it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the key points and you're alluding to really is, is, is feeling some personal value to yourself. And now we're probably getting into more, um, you know, uh, therapist type work than anything else, but I mean, feeling the value right. <laughs> when you're, when you're, um, when, as you get older, I mean, you know, you, you start feeling your physical limitations, you start feeling you're not as quick remembering names as you used to be, you're not, it's, you know, all these things are only normal part of, of, of you maturing, I guess, if you want to put it that way. And they get more intense as time goes on. So you spend a lot of time alone. I mean, I, am a people person and, and I mean, I've, we've talked a lot about this that I, I, I'm happy to be around people. Uh, you know, the pandemic's been tough on me and just only in night, I don't get out and see as many people or I don't take them on my boat as like I used to and uh, chum around with people. And I mean, I think people are really important to, to, um, you know, to, to people, people need people, as they say. And, and I think that uh, people who retire and kind of roll up and go to a workshop and start making whirly gigs all day, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, kind of miss the, their own perceived value of what they offer, you know, and again, in their profession, they've been doing for so many years ahead of time. So, um, you know, that the self-value of being around people, I think is very important and giving a lot of it back has, has a lot to do with that as well. And I, I just want to want to say too, um, you know, uh, anybody who's contemplating building a professional relationship with people like Pete and I had to do, I mean, we didn't, we didn't have to do this. I mean, Pete came to me, I invited Pete in, I opened the door, you know, we talked a lot about how this thing would work in the future and how you're not me and I'm not you and, you know, um, financially, and there's, there's all kinds of different aspects to, you know, selling a business and, and merging with, with another individual. But as, as Pete said right from the beginning, and I mean, not to sound corny about it, we, we developed a, a respect for each other, which I think is very important. And I think people who are contemplating going into business with someone or even starting a professional relationship, um, you know, have to have the respect for each other. And I mean, I know there's moments where we love to say to each other, no, you're not doing that the right way. Or would you stop doing it this way? You're driving me crazy. But we respect each other enough to make those comments. I mean, to positive statements. Um, we're friends. We've become great friends over there. I can't believe it's seven or eight or more years now. The time just flies. But I mean, I think we respect each other and we also respect each other as, as acquaintances and friends. And, and that's made this thing a lot easier. And, um, you know, I, I, I know people who have ventured into agreements with other people about selling businesses and buying businesses and merging and acquisitions and all that good stuff that have not worked out and through no particular fault of anybody. But uh, I've been very fortunate, um, you know, in my dealings with Peter Martin to, um, you know, feel that, uh, you know, I, I've, it, the transition has been very painless to me and it's been actually one of the more rewarding things I've had uh, in my life. So uh, thank you for that, that Peter. Oh, no, my my pleasure. Uh, thank you, and I and I agree with that. I can't even I can't I can't add to what to what you said, and um, because I can't add to what you say said, let's let me ask you one final question. And this is Jack Goslin, founder and president and owner of Goslin Associates, now Goslin Martin Associates. It's been great to have him on for the final podcast of 2020. Switching gears a bit, as I said, Jack has multiple interests um, that keep him occupied, but I think probably one of his favorite is sailing. Jack's got a boat. Uh, you got Jack probably, and I, and I know you could go on and on, so I'll cap it. 
But you got a quick minute or two story, you know, your favorite sailing story, whether it's from the time you've owned your boat or last year, last couple of years, favorite sailing story that you want to tell the folks? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, the boat that I did, so some sailors that are listening, you probably understand this is a, um, a traditional New England uh, cat boat made by Marshall in South Dartmouth, Massachusetts. And it's not a catamaran to be confused with the word cat. It's a... Uh, a cat boat that was originally designed um, as a as a work boat back in the early 1800s, uh, and, and it's a very beamy boat. In other words, very wide, uh, not particularly long, 22 feet, but it's got a, a very large sail. It's almost like a, a I guess, a pickup truck of, of, of sailing world, if you want to put it in that regard. Um, very utilitarian, not the fastest boat around, but a very unique boat to sail. Um, some great sailing characteristics. It's, it's made for heavy air, heavy wind, uh, heavy seas, um, and it, it takes, it's got a very large sail for its size, so it takes a lot of, um, I guess, forethinking in terms of the, the way to go about sailing the boat, and I, we get out in it quite a bit. I mean, I, I'm, I, I have it at a marina down in Mystic, and it goes in in April. We take, we actually just took it out two weeks ago, um, and we, we got about 35 to 40 sails in every season, which is a lot. Uh, Unfortunately, I have a partner that lets me enjoy the summer, so that works out real well. But um, it, again, it gives me something that uh, it's something I really know a lot of. I've been sailing since I was, uh, you know, probably eight years old. My, my parents uh, got me a little sunfish back in the day and grew up on the Cape in the summer. And they just put me out on the boat and say, as long as we can see you, you can sail all day. And that's all that's all I did. And I, I've kept that passion with me for many, many years. And it's funny. I mean, we have kind of a go fast society these days. People like power boats. They like to turn the key and say, "I've got two hours here to recreate. I'm going to go for the, you know, I'm going to go fast and go visit the vineyard and come back all in the day." But sailing is, you know, again, it's the journey, not the destination, for sure. So, uh, um, and anybody who ever wants to go for sail in a New England cat boat, uh, traditional New England cat, cat boat, knows where to reach me, and I'd be more than happy to take anybody <laughs> for sail. I can't get this Peter Martin out on the boat. I think he's just scared um, of the water. But anyway, someday I will. <laughs> you know me, I, I like the power boats and wave hopping. <laughs> you never know, Jack. You may get uh, you may you may get people from pretty far away coming to Mystic to uh, to go out on your uh, your boat. That's a pretty wide offer that you've just made there. Maybe you want to qualify it, <laughs> or maybe not. Well, love to take anybody. Yeah, or maybe not. <laughs> All right. Jack Goslin, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for appearing on this podcast. It's been, it's been great to have you. Um, I am Peter Martin from Goslin Martin Associates. That's Goslin uh, Martin. Thank you for listening in 2020. This is our last podcast of the year. So we wish you and your family a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, a Happy New Year. Hopefully we get 2020 behind us and we have a better 2021. Thank you all for listening, Jack. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks.